Hi, I'm Nikki Hunter, MTC's artistic producer, and on behalf of everyone at MTC, I want to thank you for tuning in. This podcast was created to give our audiences a behind-the-scenes look into the productions on our stages. We hope the series will introduce you to our work as a not-for-profit theater company before or after you see the show. If you want to learn more, please visit our website, www.manhattantheaterclub.com. On this episode, we take a look at How I Learned to Drive, the final production in Manhattan Theater Club's Broadway season. For this conversation, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Paula Vogel is joined by director Mark Brokaw and set designer Rachel Hauck. They chat about preparing this production for its long-awaited Broadway debut, returning to this story with fresh eyes, and how it takes a village to build a play. Let's listen in. Thank you so much for coming to join us. My name is Rachel Hauck. I am the set designer for How I Learned to Drive, and I am here with my incredible friends, the inimitable Paula Vogel, who wrote the play, and the stellar Mark Brokaw, who directed the play, both the world premiere and this long, long overdue Broadway production. Hi, friends. Say hello. Hello. It's wonderful to be here with you. Same here. So, friends... We are here to talk to these amazing people about this incredible play, which has become a classic in the American theater. And I am so curious to go back to the beginning of it and to hear about the first time you worked on it. Did you guys know each other before you worked on this play? No. No. I had never met Paula before. That's right. It's incredible. Doug Gable was the matchmaker on this. He read it and he said, I think... I think Mark Brokaw. Now, I of course, I knew of Mark, but hadn't had the pleasure before. Doug Abel, of course, the incredible artistic director of the Vineyard Theater, home to many, many brilliant brand new plays. Paula, what was the experience of writing this play like? This play is an incredible force of nature. What was it? Where did it come from? What's it like? Well, you know, I, I had it in my head for a very long time. And it's one of those plays that I just thought I can't write it until I have enough muscles, enough techniques to write this. So I held on to it for decades. And it was only by chance I got a grant to work in Alaska at Perseverance Theater. And I was going to write a play for Cherry Jones. And she was going to come with me to Alaska. And then at the last moment, she got cast in the heiress. She literally called me up two days before the plane flight. And I said, you've got to, you've got to take that opportunity, Cherry. That's wonderful. And I said, I'll make something up by the time the plane lands in Juneau, Alaska. <laughs> so, you know, when a plane lands in Juneau, Alaska, it's like an event. People go to the airport, they've got balloons and they've got confetti. And (laughs) it's really a remarkable thing to land in this place. And I got off the plane and everyone's like, Paula, where's Cherry? And I said, okay, good news and bad news. Good news and bad news. Cherry's not coming. Good news is I think I have a play. And so the circumstances forced me into writing the play for this grant. Thank God. And um, they gave me a cottage to write in. I went into the cottage and I disappeared for two weeks, did my outline. And if you've ever been in Juneau or anywhere in Alaska during the summer, the sun doesn't set. So I, 
I literally wrote this in seclusion, staying up pretty much all night and only napping. And what I remember was this feeling of flight. It didn't impact me the way I thought it would. It just made me feel like I was floating. Wow. And a sense of exhilaration. And in the middle of the two weeks, I closed down the computer. I flew to Anchorage. I rented a car. Because in Juneau, there are only 50 miles of highway before you run into the mountains. Only way in and out is by ferry or plane. So I landed in Anchorage, rented a one-way car, and I drove 100 miles an hour. Uh, Actually, it was from Fairbanks to Anchorage, just to feel it with the windows down. And then I returned and finished it. So I wrote it in two weeks. That's incredible. That story is incredible. And I, I don't know how I've never heard it, but the play feels like that. The play, when I started to pull apart the play to try and find the structure and find the way, I'm like, there's no rules in this play. It just is like a wave rolling over you and it keeps you so close. I can feel the force of that pouring out in the writing. Well, I think, you know, the moment of terror for me was putting the play in the hands of Mr. Brokaw here and actors. I had no idea. You know, we did a reading in Perseverance. I had, I just wrote this thing thinking no one's ever going to produce this. So I might as well let it all out. And then to go into the vineyard and suddenly have this reading with professional peers, that's that's when the terror hit. Mm-hmm. I think the first reading, I just was a puddle on the floor. I just wept and wept to hear it out loud. But yeah, it's I never expected it would be done within six months of finishing the play. Wow. Which never happens with writers. We usually, you know, wait for seven years. And God, what hands to put it into, Mark. You just you seem completely just nonplussed by the thing. Mark, is it true? What's your experience of this play? You know, before moving on to that, my memory, Paula, is also that once you wrote the play you know, which is a long series of many, many scenes that you didn't move them around. It sort of came out in the order it is now. Yes. And in rehearsals, even we didn't, you know, usually there's a lot of rewriting on a new play, but this play, there wasn't. I think you'd been holding inside so long, it was just ready to come out and it sort of came out ready to go. When Doug first contacted me and sent me the play, I remember the experience of first reading it and it was unlike anything else you know, that I had ever read. And I thought, I loved the structure of it and how it moved. And I remember saying to Paula in our talk that I really responded to the play and how it was structured. And I loved the Greek chorus. I didn't have a clue at that point in time how to use them and how to really make use of them in the play, but I knew they were very right. And I knew we would figure that out. I didn't have any fear about it. but. From the minute I read the play, it just seemed ready to go. And it was one of those experiences where from the first time we read it, that particular group of people, especially Mary Louise and David, just clicked. You know, it was an experience where a group of people gathered around the table, all sort of had an innate window into it. And that was unusual in my experience also. Mary Louise Parker and David Morris, the remarkable, remarkable actors who played the parts both then and now. And Johanna Day also. Yeah, Johanna Day, who is incredible and inhabits these 
searing multiple characters in the play. It seems to me you guys had to invent a structure to tell the story because the play moves in a thousand directions. Can you talk a little bit about that rehearsal process, particularly with this cast, but also inventing a, a vocabulary for the play? Well, I think the vocabulary was really is in the play. It's it's a memory play. And so the play moves like memory in the same way that as you're walking down the street, you can experience 25 thoughts in three seconds. And I think that's how this play works. And I remember Paula also talking about, what's the name of the short story, Paula, about the Oxbow incident? Occurrence at Owl Creek. It's a great short story where a man is being hung and you realize after you've read the end of this story that it, it sort of covers his whole life, but it's what happens in those few moments when the noose is put on his neck before he drops. And that was such a guiding principle for this about how quickly memory moves and how also memories often don't bleed. You know, you go from one memory and something, you bump up against something in the world that shoves you to another memory. It's like a pinball in a pinball machine. What you experience are the bumpers and it sort of bumps you through life in that way. And I think in this play for a little bit, you know, she bumps up against that first bumper and she's off to the races and the play sort of unfolds on its own. I really love a uh, circular form. When I stop and I think about, you know, the plays that we love that create a ritual every time we see them, it's that the ending is at the very same point as the beginning. And what has changed is during the journey is our perspective on what happened. So whether it's Occurrence at Owl Creek, which is the most perfect circular story, or, you know, Caucasian chalk circle, the way we make Taming of the Shrew into a circle, it actually isn't. But for me, the thing that happened in that first week, and even before the first, was Mark's vision of what the play needed in terms of comedy and light. We had this phone conversation, I think it was our first one, where you were describing the images of light that you were seeing. I remember staying on the phone with you for an hour and a half, feeling like I was in high school, talking to a boy in high school on the phone. And that first reading and all of us around the table, during the auditions, when people came in to read with Mary Louise, Johanna Day came in. And at that point in time, I had thought of the female Greek chorus, the woman who plays all of the older women roles, as being much older as an actor. And then realized, you know, there's something about age and memory where age is amorphous. And if you take a step back and look at almost everybody in the play, we actually, the first production had comedians around that table. The thing that I remember was laughing. You know, we have that expression, the milk comes through our noses. Just laughing and keeping the lightness in the air as we worked on this play. And I can't imagine how we could do this play without that, without that kind of communion of comedy that occurred in the room. Yeah, it makes it possible to hear the story, the brightness, the lightness, and the that sensation of the character a little bit when she moves forward in the story and then she hits something and she's like, I can't look at it right now. I can't look at it anymore. And she 
and she pivots and we see something else. She turns, you know, and we go with her and then we come back and we come back and we come back and we learn more. But it's not linear. But I had never thought it being circular and what you're talking about there, that's that's really remarkable. The, the structure inside the play, I mean, if anyone, I was very imprinted on Betrayal by Pinter. I love that play and the fact that it moves backwards in time. I think it's it's kind of perfect. So I just want to do a shout out to that play, Betrayal, because with inside the circle, it just steps back and steps back. What, Pinter? Still great. <laughs> Pinter. Yes, Pinter, still great. <laughs> um, what was it like, if you can speak to it, what, what was it like to watch Mary Louise and David discover this relationship? Wow. Mark? You know, it's, I will never forget the first day of rehearsal. I also had never met David Morris in person until the first day. And I remember walking up to him and he's taller than I am. And it's rare that I bump up against people that are taller than I am. He's like two <laughs> inches really taller than something. I am. And I remember looking up at him and I had done all of this. I was so proud of myself because I'd done all this research about incest and everything surrounding that topic, how it appears on the play. And I felt so proud coming in with this pile of documents, you know, for David. And I remember shoving them across the table to him on that first day. And he took a moment and he very politely shoved them back over to me. And he said, you know, I, I can't, I can't look at any of that. Uh, he said, that won't help me. He said, you know, from my point of view, I just love her. And that's the whole story. And it was a real lesson, you know, to me, that research was valuable to me, but that was something that was going to harm him, you know, if he looked at that and started thinking of himself in those terms and was judging himself in those terms. And that really was the center of that relationship then. It was about that love that is shared between the two of them. And that even though he perpetrates great harm upon her, you know, in the course of her life that she carries with her, you know, for the rest of her life, he also gave her the tools to defeat him and to be able to get away from him and to find the strength within herself to be who she truly is. And so it was that, it was keeping those two balls in the air of that story of love between them, but also not masking any of what actually occurs in the play and the events that do happen towards the end of the story. What was it like the first time you saw this in front of an audience, Paula? I just sat there waiting to be stoned and i don't mean with with edibles i i just thought people were going to chase me out of the theater into the streets i i had no expectations and then suddenly there's a living breathing audience and they're laughing and the thing i remembered that scared me and it's interesting because it's happening right now in the friedman theater is that you know the audience settles in and they laugh and then suddenly, as the play goes on, they become absolutely still. People don't move very much in their seats in this play. And that terrified me. I had never experienced that in any play that I'd written. And so I think I was in the back with you, tugging on your sleeve, Mark, or something. And I'm there going, oh, no, they're not, they're not responding. 
they're they're like statues. And I think you said that's a good sign. So I I didn't know what to expect and I remember also seeing the play on opening night with my mother and again it's the only play that my mother ever saw that I wrote. And she sat beside me and she watched the still bodies of the audience. Opening night was also the critics' night. So we were surrounded at the vineyard in that small space by critics. And she watched the audience and she said, we're deer caught in the headlights. Now my mom doesn't go to theater very much, but she reached over in the middle of the play and she said, relax, it's a success. Which was kind of an extraordinary gift from her to give me. Of course, she also, during the Mother's Guide to Social Drinking, in a very histrionic, loud bourbon baritone, exclaimed, did you leave nothing out? <laughs> and I'm like, Mom, Ben Brantley is in the row behind you. And right now, I'm saying this is not autobiographical. Can you please lower your voice? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you try to give people in your private life cover and they just don't take it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I remember seeing this production. I had no idea what it was. My then very new girlfriend, Lisa Peterson, said, I heard this was the thing to see. She didn't know what it was. And we sat down. I, I will never forget seeing the show the first time. It's exactly as you described my experience of seeing the play, where I think I held my breath for the entire, once I figured out what was happening. I remember like I saw it yesterday, clearly six or seven moments in this play. It's a stunning thing to give to an audience, the experience of this play. What has it been like to come back to it? Not once, but twice, my friends. We were... <laughs> So close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark, you persevered. I mean. Yeah, we were at the end of our third week when the world stopped. What was it like when you got the word in the rehearsal room that we would be on hold for two weeks for the pandemic? Yeah, or less. We all thought, you know, that all made sense to us, you know, at that time. And I remember that night after rehearsal was stopped and we were sent home, it was a Thursday, that I stayed till 6.30, you know, to do understudy auditions, which we completed and had all of them ready to hire and then left and went down to Port Authority subway stop. And there was nobody in the Port Authority subway stop at 6.30 on a Thursday night in Times Square. Um, and I will never forget that. But, you know, we've been trying to get that play on for 10 years, that revival, because yeah. uh, 10 years ago, we did a 15-year reunion revival at the Vineyard with the original cast, except for Michael Showalter, who was not able to be with us at that time. And I think we were all struck when we did it that, number one, how it still worked, because it's a memory play, regardless of people's ages, and also just how much people felt they still had to say about the play or experience in the play. And so for eight years, it was going to happen at Manhattan Theatre Club. and. When we came back now, two years later, you know, I said that first day of rehearsal that I was looking at those two years, not as lost time, but as time gained, because I felt that I really did gain a tremendous amount of insight just about life 
and about the play in almost two years that the play was able to work on us when we weren't working on it. And I said, you know, we're coming back, those of us from 25 years ago with what we entered the room with two years ago. And now we're starting again from what we had inside of us after those three weeks of rehearsals. So we have a tremendous amount, you know, at our disposal today as we start working on this again inside of us. And both two years ago and this time around, I think we all, all of us who were doing it for a second time said to each other with surprise, just how new the play felt to us. Of course, of course we were familiar with it and it was inside of us, but it felt like we were working on a new play again. And I think that was exciting for all of us. Paula, what's your feeling been about returning to this piece? You know, I felt so delivered by that first production. The end of the performance for me, or seeing what Mark and the cast did, gave me the same sensation of flight in my body as when I wrote it. So to have the production experience match what I saw in my head almost never happens. And I think I just trusted, I I realized how amazing everybody was in the room that I let go of it in the room instead of trying to nudge it in any direction. I'm like, I'm in great hands, let it go, it's theirs. And I will just tell you that Mary Louise and David said yes to doing six months and we ran it for over a year. And the last performance that they had on on stage in 1997 or 1998, I sat in the sound booth with a box of Kleenex and I kind of went through it. I went through the box and I thought, this is the most beautiful thing I've seen in my life of my work. I'm I'm so lucky, and yet I felt complete grief because I didn't think I'd ever see it again. So there's an out-of-body experience coming back and seeing everybody top themselves, pushing themselves to transcend the beauty that they had created 25 years ago, and they've succeeded. So this was more than I would ever think to ask the universe for. People are rightly saying who watch this that, yes, there's the play, but the truth of the matter is we're seeing master classes in design and directing and acting. And I think this is a strange thing to be saying about Broadway, but the play in some ways, the way it's being delivered by this production reminds us that all we need are actors' bodies and a platform, you know, two boards, and just enormous talent. It really, really reifies my belief in the theatrical process. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, to get out of the way of the language and the performances and just see them flow with the power that's coming off that stage. You know, sometimes as a designer, you get a free ticket to the most remarkable masterclass. And being in the room with those actors as they create, recreate, reinvent, rediscover these parts, this language, this world. I have a question for you, which is, how did you create a set that feels so flexible 
that feels like it constantly morphs in the emotional space as the play goes on, almost membrane-like for those memories? Oh, what a great question. I mean, uh, the question is an honor. Thank you. (laughs) Um, You know, it's an incredible collaboration with Lucy McKinnon, who's done the projections, the near invisible projections. We worked on this for such a long time before we found the right way to both create a potent space and step away and make sure that the language was first, the characters were first. It's very tight. It's very focused. It's sort of the combination of a kitchen floor and an open road and a fractured memory, the the sort of sculpture of the space itself. But then there's this incredibly powerful visual world we gave ourselves, which was to let this almost invisible presence of the projections, which are also, you know, they're invisible because they're so completely in the mind of the character. And so you don't think about them. I hope. Um, But the space just continues to change around her. It's remarkable work from Lucy. And from you. Oh, well, thank you. And it's video that is used in a way unlike I've ever seen it used before, also in another production. There's nothing presentational about it. There's nothing linear or narrative about it, except I might say it's, it's emotional narrative. It supports in some way emotionally what is the current that's running under the scene in some way, in a way that doesn't comment on it in any way or explicate it in any way, but just lifts it up and supports it and just sort of holds it in its hand. And I think once that vocabulary was found, then in tech and previews, a lot of it was about how much of it do we need? How do we focus this space around these people? Because so many scenes in the play are just two people on stage. And I think, you know, something Rachel and I spoke about a lot when we were talking about the design was I felt like doing it this time around, we were doing it under a microscope. We were doing it under a microscope just because people were coming to it, having seen it before, and they were going to be looking at it in a different way. But also I just felt the way that we were approaching it was a very surgical look at this world and what happens in it. And I think that's how the space ended up being so focused in the way it is. And it's been very successful. As I said to the designers, I think it was near the end of the first week of previews that the physical production was just beyond my wildest dreams of anything I would have thought, uh, you know, in those eight years of trying to get the play on, you know, so seemingly so simple. But those simple solutions are the hardest. You know, I just think they all did really extraordinary work. Sometimes as a designer, a play comes your way where the most essential thing you can do is get out of the way of the language, of the emotion. We go to a ton of places, but it's all with those actors and in that text. So what we don't need is stuff. What we do need is the power of the place. So I feel excited about that. Yeah. You know, it's very odd. I felt when I was writing this that I was taking dictation. And it's a similar thing where I wanted to get out of the way of the characters. The characters were literally dictating to me, and I wanted to get out of the way. So I'm just seconding that, that there's something about the force of Little Bit and Peck that just rushed me through the play, like an obsession. There was something obsessional about it. 
that I still feel every performance they deliver. You know, I've relied so heavily on Lucy and Rachel during previews, just and tech, because two of the designers, Mark McCullough and David Antigam, Lights and Sound, also worked on the original production. And because they were new to it, and Didi also, who designed the costumes, I would go to them a lot and say, what do you think about that? Because I knew they were coming to it with totally fresh eyes. And that was so valuable, you know, on this. And they had lots of great ideas, things that never would have occurred to me that, of course, I stole immediately. Likewise, with our two cast members, Alyssa and Chris, who play the teenage Greek and the male Greek chorus, having those eyes in the room where everything could be questioned anew from the start. And I'm realizing that there's an almost this play at this moment of time feels like an intergenerational conversation. Because now I'm watching people in the theater every night. There may be uh, younger audience members who have read the play in school or did a school production, but have never actually seen a production of the play side by side with people who are coming in who saw the production 25 years ago. So the challenge, I think, for all of us as artists is how do we keep everyone surprised, keep one step ahead? For those who know the play well and have seen it before, and for those who it's their first time. And that's a particular skill set of examining that I think you both have done in terms of the production. We're also in this point, and this is, I think, the greatest concern and conversation going in is that socially we're in a very different place in terms of the power dynamic and predatory behavior of older people with uh, younger people. There's an awareness, I think, socially in this audience that we didn't have 25 years ago. 25 years ago when we opened in that we weren't looking at these things. And now we're in a place where it feels like a sexual abuse scandal of the week happens or of the day happens in our news cycles. And certainly, you know, the Me Too movement, I I don't know where we are in the Me Too movement. Have we passed it? Are we no longer being vigilant? Or is it that we are being vigilant? I'm just going to go back to the tagline that I had when I wrote this, that fortunately the vineyard didn't use and neither did Manhattan Theater Club. Um, My tagline was, it takes a village to molest a child, using Hillary Clinton's phrase a bit. So it's a very different village that comes into the theater now. And I'm very thankful that the play still works. And I feel that the power of Mary Louise and the power of David Morse in that duo force us to go back and and re-examine again. And to go, you know what? I thought I knew everything about this, but they make us feel something that I think is really important through the power of their performances. So, Han, are you surprised? Is there anything surprising to you about the audience response right now? No. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I had maybe the same fear you did. You just never know, you know, how something's going to be received. You have a hunch how it will be received. And, you know, I feel so fortunate that my hunch came true. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with 
it's a very different play to have a little bit who is in her late 20s, as she was when we did it 25 years ago. And yes. <laughs> there is trauma that she has lived through fairly recently in her life. And she has her whole life in front of her, as opposed to now a woman, you know, 25 years older than that, who has been carrying this around inside of her for all of this time. And it's much more a story about resilience and how trauma never goes away, that you just learn to manage it differently and and you learn to control it rather than it controlling you. And I think that that's very powerful, you know, and it's it's what's universal, I think, about this play. We all have trauma in our lives. It may not be the trauma that Little Bit is experiencing, we hope, but I think that it's true for all of us. You know, we all face something that has been damaging to us at some point in our lives, and we carry that around with us, and we bump up against it all the time. And we have to manage that in some way so that we it doesn't defeat us. She's lived like 25 years of life that has deposited her in a different place than she was in her late 20s. And so we're watching the story through those eyes now instead of through those other eyes. And that's a very different story. And I think it's much more powerful. It hasn't defeated her that she has still been able to live a life that's been affected by it, but she's stronger for it. And she's, at the end of our story, able to get in that car and drive a 500-mile trip and feel that sense of flight in her body through driving. That is something that was passed along to her by that person who also caused her great harm. And so that dichotomy, you know, lives in the play for every second right up to the end. It's all about the gray. It is not about the black and white of the issue. It's all about living in the gray. And that's where we all live. We live our lives in the gray. It's very rare we live our lives in black and white. And I think that's what the play captures so beautifully. You know, I'm still going back to the impulse I had as I was keeping this story in my head. I wrote the play when I was 45 years old. And at the point that I wrote it, I had spent 15 years teaching undergraduates and graduate students and doing many, many playwriting workshops and witnessing younger writers struggling to say something, to tell something which they had felt either crippled by or damaged by. I had undergraduates in my office coming in and I had my Kleenex box right there and they were in pain. You know, they had just moved away from home and so that they could process what they couldn't say at home, what they couldn't say in high school. And I just wanted to wrap my arms around them and say, you know, you're going to find so much transformation in the years ahead. This pain is not going to define you. You are going to be able to make yourself anew and not be defined by someone else's actions. And so in many, many ways as I was writing it, I was thinking of them. And to have now been in the field an additional 25 years and having witnessed these first plays, these works, by so many remarkable writers, I feel a real hope. 
And I want to give that as well to the audience, that we come in and we all have the stories we haven't released, the things that we haven't been able, perhaps, to say, and to recognize how much freedom we feel when we change our perspective from being a victim to a survivor and become agents of our our present and our future. So I do have to say what's very moving to me now as an older writer is watching the younger people in the audience coming to see the show. And I'm also aware that we're on this moment of time where we are literally passing laws in certain states where one cannot express one's own agency as an adolescent in terms of one's body and one's sexuality and one's identity. And so, you know, I feel very good about the play. I had always worried when we first did it whether or not my intentions were going to be clear. You never know, you know. I always am reminded of the story of the young man, was it Joseph Kesselring, who wrote Arsenic and Old Lace? It was his first play. And he walked into the theater and he wrote it as a straight play, as a kind of tragedy about two old maiden sisters who were just murdering off the borders. And they started rehearsing the play on Broadway and everyone kept laughing. And the director took the playwright aside and said, hey, you know what? I think you wrote a comedy here. (laughs) You know, Joseph Kesselring had no idea. And just with a few line changes, it became this monumental hit. So what I guess I'm saying is you don't know when you set out to write something with all the intentions of your heart how that's going to resonate in the room with actors. But I feel very good about it. I feel in your hands, Mark, I've always been guided. You're just so clear, aesthetically and ethically, about this journey. 100% true. You know, it's a fascinating thing. My experience as somebody who has not been through any sort of abuse, I'm incredibly lucky in my life. And to be in this moment of community awareness um, and societal awareness through Me Too of all of this, and then to be able to have the incredibly personal and intimate experience that this play gives us. I want to thank you both for this incredible conversation and especially for the opportunity to work on this beautiful, beautiful play. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who is listening to this. It's been such a great pleasure and a great honor to be able to work on this play again. And big kudos to Manhattan Theatre Club for sticking with us over the course of the two years and, and producing the play and keeping a spot for us. And also to everyone who's been working on it. It's been a real gift to be able to come back to this play 25 years later and experience it all again and discover so much in it that I didn't realize the first time round, And I think the cast would join me in that observation. We feel like it's been a very special gift. I want to express also my, my gratitude to Daryl Roth and Cody Lassen and the Manhattan Theater Club for giving me this chance, this opportunity. Something that I do want to say is that for a woman of my generation, in the American theater, there are very few revivals. First of all, I'm glad that I lived long enough to see it. Uh, 
and I uh, that I, I just want to thank my maker for. But what I also want to say that's so profoundly wonderful in this moment of time is to have gone from 25 years ago where very few women were being produced. And we still have a ways to go, but to be on Broadway in this season with wonderful, wonderful people of color, writers of color, women writers, to have as my colleagues, Lynn Nottage and Dominique Morisot, and to be in a town that, you know, Lloyd says the Chinese lady has just finished up. The thing that I want to express is how important it is to me to make sure that theater continues to represent the rich diversity of stories that are happening in our midst. And not-for-profit theater uh, and commercial producers together in collaboration are giving us that gift. To be done in New York gives a visibility and a permission. And I know that this is a moment of incredible, incredible playwriting out there. So I just want to express my thanks and my pride in being a collaborator and a colleague with these remarkable writers in our midst. I can't think of a better way than that to close this conversation. What an incredible opportunity to speak to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, MTC, for the chance to do this. Much love, friends. See you at the theater. <laughs>